Welcome to Let Genius Burn, a podcast series about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott. I'm Jamie Burgess. And I'm Jill Fuller. And we're your hosts and the creators of this podcast. Let Genius Burn is an eight-part mini-series, and each episode will dive into a different aspect of Louisa May Alcott's identity. In today's intro episode, you'll get to meet us, your hosts. But first, we'll be covering a brief biography of Louisa May Alcott to introduce you to Louisa and her world. In the short story Behind a Mask, the young governess Jean Muir is hired by a rich family for her appealing looks and winning personality. Finally alone in her room, Jean kneels in front of the trunk that carries her only worldly possessions. She mixes a cordial and takes a long draft from her flask. Slowly, she removes her hair, then her makeup, then her dress, then her teeth. What's left of her is a haggard woman in the place of the young, pretty thing she had been moments before. Finally, she half uncovers her breast to expose the scar of a newly healed wound. Then she creeps off to bed, worn out by the mental weariness and exhaustion of wearing a costume and playing a part every day of her life. These macabre gothic details could be from a story by Charlotte Bronte, but in fact, Behind a Mask was written and published by Louisa May Alcott. For many years, Louisa May Alcott wrote thrillers under a pseudonym as a way to earn money to support her family. Though she was best known for Little Women and the other books known as her juvenile novels, Louisa May Alcott's lesser-known works explore themes such as suicide, poverty, deception, and dark magic. These themes were as much a part of Louisa's psyche as any of the children's books she wrote. In fact, as we're going to see in the next eight episodes of Let Genius Burn, they are present in the many facets of Louisa's character. Little Women was an instant bestseller, and in the past 153 years since its debut, Louisa May Alcott has been remembered as a writer of children's stories, the children's friend. If we look deeper, behind the mask, if you will, we see that her life was not the tidy moral story of her best-known book. Louisa May Alcott was a complex, ambitious woman who struggled to raise her family out of poverty. Through writing, she found escape, solace, and ultimately hard-won financial freedom. Louisa May Alcott was born in 1832 in Germantown, Pennsylvania, to parents Bronson Alcott and Abigail May Alcott. Her father, Bronson, was a Connecticut-born educator who was attempting to start his own school, and her mother, Abigail, was from a prominent Boston family that shared lineage with the Quincy's and Hancock's. Abigail was also an ardent feminist and excellent writer. Louisa was their second daughter. Bronson Alcott had lofty ideas about education and how to raise and teach a child. In Louisa's earliest childhood, she was subjected to Bronson's experiments in child psychology, and he took copious notes on what he saw as her dark nature. She was a willful and difficult child, headstrong like her mother, qualities that Bronson sometimes feared in his young daughter as he speculated about the woman she would become. Bronson himself was a mild-mannered philosopher. 
his schools were unusual for the 19th century. He advocated for children to have their own desks and to sit in a circle so they could share ideas. He had a library available to his class and set up sculptures and art to show the children. He gave recess time. And most egregious to his 19th century contemporaries, he believed that all children deserved equal access to education, male or female, white or black. Louisa's education and upbringing had a strong influence on her principles and beliefs. By 1840, the Alcott family included four daughters, Anna, Louisa, Elizabeth, and May. The family was subject to Bronson Alcott's many whims and intellectual interests, including a nine-month stint in a utopian community called Fruitlands, which nearly ended in the starvation and freezing of the whole family. Bronson, who was himself a transcendentalist philosopher, took the family to Concord, Massachusetts, to be among other prominent authors and scholars, including Rolf Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Elizabeth Peabody, and Margaret Fuller. This was Louisa May Alcott's childhood, visiting Emerson's library and borrowing his books, reading Shakespeare and imitating his plays with her sisters. She loved nature and loved to run, believing she had been a deer or a horse in another life. She loved her sisters and especially her dear mother, Abigail, who was the center of her world. Abigail validated Louisa's many moods and applauded her trials in being good. Though Bronson's many attempts to earn money failed, the family stayed afloat on the kindness and good graces of their many friends. For about 10 years during Louisa's late teens and early 20s, the sisters all went out to work to earn money for the family. Their debts piled up and Louisa couldn't imagine a way they would manage. Abigail, Louisa's mother, worked as a missionary to the poor in Boston, which was an early type of social work, continuing to instill her values of altruism and equality in her daughters. Louisa herself kept teaching and sewing, though she truly wanted to write. Her attempts at writing and publishing came in fits and starts. She published a book of fairy stories, then some thrillers under different names, but she'd been told that she couldn't write and she should stick to her teaching. In 1857, the Alcotts at last returned to Concord, Massachusetts, and found some sense of stability, though they lost their dear Elizabeth that year. In 1858, they moved into the Orchard House, the brown house on Lexington Road that is today known as the home of little women. They lived in this house through the Civil War, when Louisa lamented being born a woman because she longed to go and fight. Instead, she found a place as a nurse in December 1862, just after her 30th birthday. At the new year in 1863, Louisa celebrated the Emancipation Proclamation in Washington, D.C., as abolition was one of the causes closest to her heart. Shortly after, she contracted typhoid pneumonia from the unsanitary hospital conditions, and for several weeks, she was close to death. When Louisa's fever and delirium wore off, she woke to find that she was back in Concord with her family, her long, shiny, dark hair cut short. She was a different woman after that experience, no longer youthful and full of energy as she had once been. She'd been treated with a medicine called calomel, which is made of mercury, and the effects of the medication followed her throughout her life, plaguing her with joint aches, headaches, and fatigue. Ever concerned with earning money, Louisa May Alcott spun her experiences in the Civil War into gold when she wrote and published her most successful work to date, 
Hospital Sketches, the stories of Nurse Tribulation Periwinkle charmed audiences and earned Louisa new publishing accolades. A few years later, in 1868, a publisher approached Louisa and asked her to write a book for girls. Louisa reflected on her childhood. She had never known many girls or liked any but her sisters, she said, but she was ready to give anything a try to earn a little more money she could use to care for her mother and sisters. That book for girls became Little Women, and it was so popular that it took the Alcotts out of their financial troubles and into comfortable wealth. In the years that followed, Louisa was able to provide for her parents and her sisters as never before. She provided for her oldest sister, Anna, who had two sons, and she took her youngest sister, May, on a grand tour of Europe through France and Italy so May could study art. Louisa never married but stayed with her parents caring for them as they aged. Abigail died in 1877. May followed in 1879, a difficult blow for Louisa, though she felt some consolation when May's daughter came to live with her for the next several years. Bronson Alcott died at 88 years old in 1888, just two days before Louisa herself. She died on March 6, 1888, at age 55. Like many women in history, Louisa May Elcott has been reduced to a byline, or misremembered entirely, known only for little women. But Louisa May Elcott was more than a character, and more than a book. Like all of us, she, to quote her contemporary, Walt Whitman, contained multitudes. She was witty and shocking, complex and complicated, with a personality and beliefs that were ahead of her time. She circulated with some of the great American minds of the 19th century. She lived through momentous historical events, some of which deeply influenced and changed her completely. She was surprisingly modern in her thoughts on women's rights, social justice, and marriage. From Louisa, we can see what it means to live by principle as well as passion, how to face disappointment, and how to persevere and keep putting pen to paper. In her life story, we see a woman struggling to balance a family and a career, a writer coming to terms with the public side of success, a woman who burned for opportunities she could never have. In the next eight episodes, we will dive deeper into Louisa's biography, bringing her out from under the shadow of Little Women. In each episode, we will highlight a different facet of Louisa's life and experiences, from her relationships with her family and the social justice causes she championed, to her process as a writer, her experiences with fame, and how she redefined womanhood for herself. Rather than telling her story in a chronological timeline, we've chosen to examine her life and identity as if each part of her story is a puzzle piece. Louisa as a daughter, as a sister, as a writer, as a woman. Each piece fitting together to create a whole, a portrait of a woman many know of, but may not really know at all. Behind the shiny veneer created over the years by the legacy of Little Women lives the book's creator, a woman with a far grittier and more complex story, one of perseverance in the face of trauma and destitution, of self-confidence in making her own way, and of making difficult choices between the freedom to create art and a responsibility to her family, all modern issues that resonate with us today. As you listen, we hope you find something in Louisa's story that resonates with you and inspires you to dig further, not only into Louisa's history, but into the stories of other women who exist only in the footnotes of the past. 
So Jill, let's talk about why we're here. How did you meet Louisa May Alcott? I met Louisa May Alcott through Little Women, but not through the book. I met her through the movie, the 1994 one with Winona Ryder as Joe. And I remember watching that movie again and again. My sister and I uh, memorized every line. I mean, we probably still almost know it word for word, which is kind of like our party trick. <laughs> um, but I hadn't read the book as a child. I didn't read it until I was older. Uh, so the movie was it for me. That was my introduction. And I still remember making that connection between myself and the character of Joe uh, when I, and there's a scene in the movie where Joe, they, they get an orange, Joe's eating an orange up in her garret while she's writing. And I remember I wanted to be a writer when I was younger. My mom, you know, kind of like Louisa's mom, she always, you know, supported me and encouraged me in that. And so I remember one day I was in my room and I think I was, I was writing or I was doing something or I told my mom I wanted to go write. And so my mom went into the kitchen and she peeled me an orange so that I could sit there and eat my orange like Joe March did in the movie. And I remember like doing that and feeling like I was Joe for really the first time. That's kind of the way, you know, I connected with a character in a really immediate way of, oh, I could, you know, I'm like this too. You know, this is, you know, uh, someone that I relate to and someone that I can kind of, am, I'm like her a little bit. And so that was kind of the first, when I read the biography by John Madison called Eden's Outcasts, that's when I first really connected with Louisa as a person, not just through the book or not just as a character, but I recognized things in Louisa that I also felt or saw in myself. She wasn't a conventional woman of her time. She was moody and sometimes short-tempered and just kind of sometimes just wanted to do her own thing. And so I've definitely had times where I feel like that. <laughs> so I connected with her on that level. She was herself and she was proud to be who she was. And there were things about herself that she wanted to improve, but she wasn't going to be someone different in order to fit herself into a box or in order to fit herself into a definition of what she was supposed to be or should be. And I find that extremely inspiring because it was much more difficult for her to do that than it is for me now, 150 years later in a very different time. But at the same time, that struggle is still there. So I look to her as the example of that. Like you, I didn't read Little Women as a young girl and really connect to it and latch onto it. Um, I came to Louisa first through reading hospital sketches when I was a senior in college. So I was an English major in undergrad and didn't have American Lit until my final year of college, but we read hospital sketches and I was just so taken by this particular writing style. It was so fresh and modern. And I just thought, this is Louisa May Alcott. Like this is the author of Little Women. I, I couldn't believe that. I really loved Hospital Sketches too, because I felt like it was doing something that I was trying to do, which was to take my own life experiences and to turn them into writing that people could connect to and care about. And that 
was what Louisa did with hospital sketches. So I was really interested in that to the point where I started researching Louisa's life a little bit more. And I went to visit the Orchard House Museum and I was about to graduate from college. So, you know, I, I started volunteering at the museum and I first volunteered out in the garden. Actually, I love gardening. So that was a natural fit, but eventually I became a guide there and an educator. And when I read Little Women as part of my training to work there, I got to the part where Lori and Amy finally get together. Spoiler alert if you've never read Little Women. But the part in Europe where Lori and Amy decide to be together. And it just kind of clicked. And I was like, oh, I did read this as a child. I definitely read it. But it just goes to show that I truly had very little personal connection to it to the point where I didn't even remember reading it. And interestingly enough, a book that I really connected to as a child and loved and read again and again was The Five Little Peppers and How They Grew, which was written by Margaret Sidney, the pen name of Harriet Lothrop, who actually bought Orchard House and is the person that advocated for Orchard House to become a museum. And if you're not familiar with Orchard House, it's the house where the Alcotts lived for 20 years. And it is now kind of known as the home of little women. All the movie versions model their March house after Orchard House. It's like this brown colonial style house. So that is really the center for a lot of Alcott research. They also have the summer conversation series where like Alcott scholars gather every summer and share ideas. So for about five years after college, that place was really like the center of my intellectual life, attending the conferences, meeting these Alcott people and getting to know their work, reading tons and tons about the Alcotts, their world, their lives. And it also, most importantly to me, provided me with this community of other women who really had the same kinds of values that the Alcotts had, like these values of openness, um, really valuing diversity, really valuing women's issues and women's rights. We haven't talked very much about this, but we will, in the context of the rest of the podcast, talk about the Alcotts as activists. You know, their abolition was far ahead of their time. They were interested in food reform and um, dress reform for women. So there were so many causes that the Alcotts really championed. And those were the kinds of things I found myself really latching on to, specifically with the other women who worked at Orchard House. They were mainly, you know, um, young, bright, interesting college students that I worked with in the summer or women who were retired from other careers and, and being docents at the museum and just such interesting people. And I think we were all connected by these like shared values. So for me, that's something that I still go back to with when it comes to the Alcotts is like they 
were so interesting, so ahead of their time, so connected to contemporary issues to the point where like, I think about them pretty much every day and I, you know, use their lives as kind of like a, a measure of success for my own. Like, am I living up to, you know, some of their values? Am I really acting in a way that I think, you know, what would the Alcots do? And so that's a consistently a question that I have. Um, as a little women character, I would definitely describe myself more as an Amy than a Joe. Um, I don't know that might turn off some <laughs> listeners, but I don't think so. Definitely Amy's um Amy's kind of struggle with like does talent become genius and you know can you be an artist are you born with that or can you develop it her love of France and of Europe those are things that are really important to me so um yeah the outcasts are incredibly important to my life I'm so excited (laughs) to be here yeah I want to go off of what you had said about like the community of women there and for me I don't have a literature background I have a history background. That's what my degree is in. And so for me, I love, um, you know, not only, you know, the community of women that you're talking about that are there, that are part of, and we know people through like the Lisa May Alcott Society and all these, you know, these fabulous people who are um, doing such great work. Um, But also looking back at like Louisa's life, the thing that draws me in is not just her, but the circles that she ran in, the people that she knew, the whole um, kind of era uh, there in like in New England, this was it was a time like right before the Civil War where you've just got so much going on and so much is in flux and so much is in question. And again, jumping off of what you just said about like their beliefs and their activism, you know, they were ardent abolitionists at a time when that was extremely unpopular. Um, and we're going to talk about this more, but and they were, you know. The, their friends and their acquaintances were also people that were very involved in these types of movements. And so I think that that says a lot too. It's not just something they paid lip service to. It's something that they followed through on uh, the whole Elcott family. And so Louisa definitely was influenced by that. And that too, yeah, that's extremely inspiring um, because we're living through a time of a lot of different movements and a lot of different um, things that are being questioned. I mean, we are both white cis women, you know, so there are a lot of things that, you know, we are learning and we are experiencing and we are trying to act on. And so, yeah, like Louisa and the Elcots, that's kind of that like divining rod for me, you know, of which direction you go in and with, with sticking your principles. And we'll talk about all this in the future, but yeah, that's something that's definitely continues to, to uh, make a difference for me with the, with the Elcots and the people that they were around. Right. I think of, for example, when John Brown's widow came to Concord and Louisa was so proud to have Mm -hmm. served tea to John Brown's widow. I mean, he was a polarizing figure, but the Alcott's were very dedicated to abolitionism, as you said, and they were from the beginning. And so it's important to you know, keep going back to other periods in American history and seeing that, hey, this is not unprecedented that we face big questions about what we value as a society and that certain people have to stand up for what they believe is right. 
even mm-hmm. if it's really difficult. And I think that's why we, you know, continue to talk about the Alcots and look into their lives is because they were truly on the right side of history in so many of these cases, like we're saying, like education reform with Bronson Alcott's ideas, whatever you think of Bronson Alcott as a person, and we will let the listeners decide over the course of the next eight episodes. Because mm-hmm. he too, like Louisa, was a complicated, complex, real life human being. And he occasionally through you know, the study of history has been flattened out a bit into maybe a more one-dimensional figure. I think Eden Zoukas did an amazing job of presenting mm-hmm. him as someone deserving, deserving empathy, deserving our empathy, but not unconditionally. And so um, for our listeners, like we will reference that book in particular quite a lot. It's a special favorite for both of us, but there are There are several other texts that we'll be referencing and you'll be able to read about those in our show notes. Let's talk a little bit about why we decided to call our podcast Let Genius Burn. So we burned through, we burned through uh, several ideas (laughs) for the title of the podcast. And when we hit on this idea, it spoke to, to both of us really because We were talking about this question that Louisa had about what is genius? Can it be taught? Is it something that you're born with? It comes up many times in Little Women, specifically um, this question of does genius burn, Joe? And, you know, for Joe as well as for Louisa, writing came in these intense spells. She called them her vortex where she would just disappear into the work. Those types of things make me think that Louisa really was a singular genius of her time, even though she didn't see herself that way. And she had a lot of questions about whether or not she really was exceptional as a writer. And that's something that she continued to question because her career as it went you know, toward these juvenile novels, she didn't have the literary acclaim that she sought, actually, even even as her books were wildly successful, they weren't really accepted into the American literary canon. And I think that's something that we're bringing to the podcast that we want, we want to sort of refute and we want people to think about again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that one. Let Genius Burn So she talks about genius too, not just in Little Women, but also in her own personal writings, in her letters and some journal entries. I don't have any offhand right in front of me, but I do remember there's one that I circled when I first read it. Uh, She was writing to like an aspiring writer who asked her for advice or something. And she said, genius is infinite patience. And I think that hit me because up to this point in history, and especially in kind of the circles that she was running in, which is, you know, Emerson Thoreau, like all these heavy hitters that we know of and who are kind of just, again, like you're saying, like part of this canon of authors that everyone learns about um, and reads. Genius was, I think, considered something that was a man's domain, as was almost everything in Louisa's time was anything that was public was a man's domain. 
And I think that, you know, to claim that genius is not, when she says that genius is infinite patience, she's saying that, you know, genius is work. Genius is putting in the time and, and, and the effort and continuing to try, even when you are told that you can't write or that you shouldn't be writing. Um, and so for me, when I, she is very kind of self-deprecating about whether or not she's a genius. Sometimes she's almost poking fun at herself in these letters and things, but, uh, but she was in that she did put considerable work and time and effort into her writing and into her work. And so, you know, for me, it's let genius burn, you know, let these women have a voice, not just Louisa, but just, you know, let women have a voice, let women have the space to write and to create and, you know, let them be able to claim this title of genius, not just back then, but now as well. I think there's so much that I know you and I personally take from Louisa's life and experiences, but that I think a lot of others can as well when we really dive into Louisa's life. So um, that's, that's what Let Genius Burn means to me. That brings us to the structure maybe of each episode. Sure. Yeah. Let's go into that. Each episode will begin with a scripted, almost like an essay about a certain aspect of Louisa's life and identity. And then we're going to go into a more candid conversation, just like we did in this episode, where Jill and I will discuss some current events or other connections within the Alcott circles that we didn't quite get to in the scripted part, and we'll have a more informal discussion. And also in the spirit of the Alcott's beliefs in social justice, like we were just talking about, each week we will be highlighting an organization that we believe in and asking for your support if you can. Uh, and so you'll be able to find information and links to donate in the show notes for each episode. So we'll see you next week for episode one, Louisa as daughter. Until then, you can follow us on Instagram or on Facebook. We're at Let Genius Burn. And you can also find more information about Louisa and her world in the show notes and on our website at LetGeniusBurn.com. Bye.